everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Glenn Packiam, who has recently authored the brand new book called The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. And he did a lot of partnership uh, with Barna into it. And so there's a lot of uh, like research into it, which is always something that I love learning about. If this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, though, I do want to let you know that uh, there's two things that drive a lot of what we do here on the podcast. And the first one is this belief is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And the second one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything, regardless of whether or not we agree with someone 100% on that thing. And so if this happens to be uh, your first time listening or whether or not you've been listening for a long time and you have something that you would love us to cover on the podcast or talk about or whether or not that might be um, a person or a subject, the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com and would love to hear from you on that. Or if you just love learning from the Learner's Corner, go ahead and uh, check out the newsletter, which I just started. I'm going to link to that in the show notes and you'll get a weekly dose of some of the stuff that I'm learning from. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about the Learner's Corner, you can also sign up for Patreon where you'll get a couple bonus episodes a month of different things that I'm learning from and some of the things uh, yeah, and what I'm learning about as well. In those, I'm uh, I'm taking like a little bit of a, a different approach to it. Some of them are going to be uh, like a deeper dive into, you know, a book or a resource that I'm learning from. And some of it is going to be, you know, original content from me and some of the things that I'm thinking about, some of the things that I'm learning from and putting all of that stuff together. However, today I am talking with Glenn Packiam. And let me tell you a little bit about Glenn. Glenn is the associate senior pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs and lead pastor of one of its eight congregations, New Life Downtown. A senior fellow at Barnard Group, a visiting fellow at John or St. John's College in Durham University, and an adjunct professor at Denver Seminary. He is also the author of several books, including Blessed, Broken, Given, and Worship in the World to Come. He is also an ordained priest with Ang- Anglican Church of North America and speaks regularly at conferences and has appeared on numerous podcasts and radio shows. He is also one of the founding leaders and songwriters for the popular band or the popular Desperation Band. He also has released three solo albums with Integrity Music and has written or co-written nearly 70 worship songs. Glenn and his wife Holly live in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains with their four children. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Glenn Packiam. Well, Glenn, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. Great to chat with you. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, you've uh, released and authored this uh, brand new book, you know, uh, in partnership with Barna called The Resilient Pastor. And anytime that I talk with somebody, I absolutely love hearing the the story or the series of events that led someone to go, hey, I need to put this out into the world. And so I would just love to hear what that was for you. Yeah. So in February of 2020, David Kinneman, who's the president of Barna, 
uh, was in town and he wanted to get together for some coffee and we were chatting and he said, man, I'd love to, to partner with you uh, to write a book about the challenges of, you know, ministry in a changing world. And, and I thought, man, that, that sounds amazing. And I, of course, I have such great respect for the kind of research and work that they do at Barna. And I love that approach to, you know, to a book where you, you kind of have a, uh, some, some analysis of a situation or a challenge, and then you reflect on it theologically. And of course, I have a great, you know, great love for the church. I've served in a local church for over 20 years and uh, love pastors. My parents, you know, have been pastors. And, but I, I will say that it was a bit of a daunting task. And I thought, I don't know if I'm quite the right guy to do this, but I'm honored by the invitation. And so I thought about it, prayed about it, and began to get excited about it and said yes. And then less than a month later, the pandemic began. And I thought, uh-oh, have we bitten off more than we can chew here? But it, it turned out to be obviously a very, very timely project. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things before we dive into a lot of the book that I wanted to um, just make sure that, you know, everybody's listening is on the same page is I would just love to hear, like, whenever you talk about resiliency, like, what does that mean to you? Like, what? Um, yeah, just talk about that and the place that you're coming from for that. Yeah. You know, when you go to the doctor for like a stress test or a heart test, and usually as you get, you know, into your 40s or 50s, maybe, uh, what they're trying to do is put the body under duress. You know, you 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 have you kind of run real hard on the treadmill. And they're not testing to see how you do. They're actually testing to see how you bounce back. And the the test of health at a certain age for us is not that we never experience duress or not that we never experience stress, but it's about how we sort of recalibrate. And I think that's a great way to think about resilience. Resil resilience doesn't mean that we're never discouraged. It doesn't mean that we're never anxious or, or depressed or, 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 you know, feel the weight of the decisions that we're making. It doesn't mean that we don't experience the stress and the strain. It just means that in spite of the stress and the strain, we're able to sort of recalibrate uh, maybe return to the center or for a Christian or for a, yeah, for any Christian, that means returning to our first love, returning to Jesus, returning to our, the hope that grounds us. And so I would say for a Christian, resilience isn't just sort of bouncing back. It's a gift. It's a work of grace. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us to bring us back to, again, to that first love and bring us back to the hope of resurrection. So I, I wouldn't want someone listening to imagine that, oh, resilience is kind of our sort of white knuckle uh, uh, work, you know, some some sort of uh, the result of our own strength or or genius. No, it's a dependence on God. It's a work of the spirit. It's a work of grace uh, that brings us back to a place of health and strength and a place of grounding in Christ. Yeah. And you, I mean, you, you talk about this, like even in the intro, there's so many things, like even just in the intro to where I'm like, oh man, I got to ask you about this. Um, but one of the things that, and I think it goes against that definition of resilience that you're talking about is, um, is, you know, the, the American dream <laughs> with it. And I, and, you know, you, you briefly touch upon this, I think in the intro, but you talk about how sometimes we can confuse the American dream with yeah. what it actually means to, to be with God and to be a part of the kingdom of God. And that's something that I've been thinking about recently of like, where do we, where do we confuse the two? And I would just love your thoughts on where, yeah, where do we confuse the two and think, Hey, we're, we're pursuing the kingdom of God. And maybe we're maybe pursuing the, the kingdom of the American dream. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I know from firsthand experience, how easy it is to confuse that, you know? Um, and uh, the first time I became aware of it, certainly not the last time, but the first time I became aware of it was, uh, 2006, when the scandal of the founding senior pastor at New Life, uh, you know, made public news, uh, it, it confronted 
us, you know, not only with, you know, his failure, but actually it very quickly became about um, our own, um, uh, the the way that we were swept up into influence and all of that, that, that sort of talk. And I felt like the Holy Spirit put the searchlight on my own heart, you know, and, and yes, you know, his sin and all of that, but also how susceptible are we to, to, to falling and how easily do we, you know, fall prey to our own ego and vanity and pride. And that's when I began to realize, Caleb, you know, there's, there's these, it's easy to think that bigger is always better or that church growth is always the end goal, or that if you're having more influence, you, you never stop to ask yourself, are you sure this is healthy? What if it's just fame or celebrity or American culture? And, and when you, when I stopped to, to really kind of look at the scriptures, um, in particular, reading about the story of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Run with the Horses. I'm rereading it right now. But I first read it in 2007. And Jeremiah is such an interesting example of this because he, here's a prophet who is faithful to his call, but with no results, right? The people don't really repent. They think he's a false prophet. They try to throw him down a well, you know, and, and yet he's faithful. And then contrast Jeremiah with Jonah, who's not faithful or you know, doesn't really want to do uh, to obey this call and yet experiences all of this external success. I mean, the entire city repents. The king repents. I mean, if that happened for us where the, the president or government officials were repenting or coming to our revival meetings, we'd think we made it, you know. But in God's eyes, in the kingdom of God, Jonah is not faithful and Jeremiah is faithful. And and I think that alone, those two examples alone, make us recalibrate our definition of of, of success or of blessing. And And then, of course, Jesus. You know, you think about Jesus. Was Jesus blessed? Absolutely. And yet the Jesus, the anointed one, central to his life and calling is this cross. And, and you know, the disciples didn't want to believe that. Peter's like, no, Lord, may it never be, you know. And I think that's true for all of us is we don't understand a, a picture of blessing that could actually involve a cross. But it, it, in the in the scriptural arc of these characters, the people that follow God and experience his blessing, they're living lives of faithfulness. And they're living lives of cross and resurrection, of death and resurrection. Uh, I think you hit on like such a good point with that. It it can be very hard to 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 figure out whether or not you know someone is you know successful in the kingdom of God. Um, but like, what are what are some things? And again, I feel like it's one of those things to where I don't feel like there is like a a, a complete answer, or we could get one hundred percent correct on this because so much of it is you know motivations and the internal nature yeah. of our own relationship yeah. with God. Uh, but I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on um, like what you look for of maybe like some signs that it's like okay, this this could be part of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what I'm looking for in my own life and what the Lord convicts me of is. Am I living a life that is shaped like the cross? You know, in other words, am I am I willing to lay down myself? Am I willing to lose for someone else to win? Am I willing to um, to take the hit for someone else to flourish? And I, I think oftentimes when we're pursuing what we think is the blessing of God, but is actually the American dream or success or bigger, better, more famous, whatever. Um, typically, what we're doing is we're stepping on other people, you know, and and we're 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 putting other people down or we're lifting ourselves up, and so the convicting kind of lens or the mark of this is: does it look like the cross? Does it look specifically like um, this this way of the kingdom where it's upside down, where the last are first, and and um, and sometimes that means you know making decisions that are antithetical, where you're like, yeah, this. 
this or not antithetical, but sort of paradoxical, where you think we could grow, we could add another thing, but instead of that, let's plant a church. I mean, that that's just you know one example of that. And and I'm not saying growth is 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 uh, is you know the other mistake is to say that growth is always wrong, and I don't think that's true either. Yeah. You know, um, and like you said, Caleb, it's just not that simple. There's there's discernment, there's accountability, there's humility. Um, but what we're always looking for is, does this look like the cross-shaped life of Jesus? Yeah. Uh, one of the things, and this, uh, this, this is more just my curiosity because you, you don't uh, get into it a ton in the book, but you mentioned about your, your, your fascination and your curiosity around situ- situational analysis and theological yeah. analysis. And just even the way that you said that, that just got me so intrigued. I would just love your thoughts on like, what has that looked like for you? What, like, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I learned that kind of approach when I was doing my doctoral work at Durham University in the UK. And one of the, you know, one of the things that I learned in that is you you can have good theological reflection, but if you have poor situational analysis, that's still bad public theology. So I, a lot of my research, you know, a few years ago was about contemporary worship songs and services and how people experience hope and all of that. And and I think, you know, that's an example where it's very easy for people to say, oh, contemporary worship or modern worship, you know, all these songs are just so me focused and they're they're not very good theologically. Therefore, the church is, um, you know, shallow and blah, 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 you know. So the theological reflection part is, oh, you know, we need to be formed in the image of God. We need to be good disciples and all this stuff. And then, but the poor situational analysis is, these songs are terrible. Therefore, that's why we have a discipleship problem in the American church. And actually, a, a deeper situational analysis would be to say, well, songs are, are one piece of this. You know, what, what about preaching? What about community? What, what about the actual experience? Because two people could sing the same song and have totally different things going on in their heart. You know, one could be thinking selfishly. One could be thinking, you know, sacrificially as they're singing the same lyric. And so you you realize actually a better situational analysis is required. And of course, you know, Caleb, I mean, think, pick your controversy of the last two years, you know, masks or yeah. whatever, or, or racial justice. People do a very thin analysis of the situation and they come to their conclusion and then they do this rich kind of, oh, well, the Bible, this and that, you know. And so people come to all of these conclusions about, about uh, a situation um, in a very cheap way, but then and but then match it with all of this uh, pontificating about theology and, and the Bible, and you're like, well, I think you've misread the situation to begin with. Yeah, and you kind of like, and you, and you've done it some, but I, I'm just so like I love learning about this stuff, and so mm-hmm. can you talk me through like, do you have a process for like understanding the situation better? Yeah. Or going like, okay, I actually think this there's there's more stuff here than what is you know yeah. on the surface. Yeah, I mean, one of the big one of the big tools you learn from anth- the world of an anthropologist is to let people describe the meaning of the events in their own words. You know, so so take you know, for example, people trying to figure out why did evangelicals vote a particular way, or why are certain people joining certain protest rallies, or whatever. You know, and a lot of the conclusions or a lot of the interpretations are being made from the outside. It's someone from the outside saying, "I know why," you know, uh, or why are are certain churches not requiring masks? Well, I know why, and you know, instead of take a moment and actually listen to the people say, 
describe their own actions or the meaning of their own actions. So you say, oh, tell me about this or this and this. And what you discover is when people start interpreting their own actions or giving you the reasons for their, their actions, it's more complex than, than we thought. It's not a simple story. Um, so a good anthropologist uses a tool called ethnography, where you are allowing people to explain and make meaning of their lives and their actions on their own, in their own words. And you take that seriously. So I, I just see we, we really don't do a lot of that. But see, to, to do ethnography requires a kind of empathy. It requires being willing to see from another person's point of view. It requires being able to say, well, let's see, I thought your actions mean this, but you're saying your actions actually mean this. And I've never thought of that before. So it requires really being willing to see from another person's point of view. Yeah. And does history, like it does like history play into that too? And then, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. Yeah. I mean, think of all, there are many tools in, in, in sort of this, this work. History is a part of it. A cultural analysis is a part of it. There's even sometimes a kind of human psychology, like what's, what's going on, you know? Um, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, all these people who, who don't wear masks, just, just pick a one controversial example, you know, it's because they're not Christ-like and they don't care about the vulnerable. Well, there's also this human psychology component that the more you force someone to do something, the less likely they're going to do it. It's actually in this secular business book I've just been reading called The Human Element. And they, they talk about it as reactants. The harder you push, the more people react against it. So anyway, my, my point is, there's history, there's there's personality, there's psychology, there's all of these, it's a complicated picture. And if we have a simple story, uh, it doesn't matter how good our theology or our, our theological reflection is about that situation, um, we, we need to do better work of having a, telling a more complex story. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I can imagine you know, depending on who you're talking to, you probably get resistance on like, hey, why are you bringing the situational analysis into this? Or, you know, in the secular world, it would be a very much a why are you bringing the theological analysis yes. in, you're right. into it? And so uh, how do you how do you go about going like, hey, this actually requires like talking with people and going like, hey, this actually like requires a more theological analysis to the subject. Yeah. And then on the other end, like helping them, people understand, hey, this actually requires like situational yes. allow analysis and just analysis. integrating them. Yeah, that's really a great point, Caleb. And I, I mean, OK, let's think about the racial justice issue, you know, so some people want to just say, oh, you know, this is the history and these are the structures. And so therefore, blah, blah, blah. And that's important. But theology is so important here, because when you when you look at um, uh, the scripture, what you discover is the Bible doesn't tell a very simple story of saying all oppressed people are good and all oppressors are bad. Uh, in fact, one of the early stories that the Bible tells us about the oppressed and the oppressor is about Israel in Egypt. And so you kind of, the first part of the story, you're like, yeah, bad Egypt, good Israel. And then what do you find out about Israel once they get out of Egypt? They're worshiping an idol. <laughs> and all of a sudden you realize, Oh, sin is sin is all over the place, and sin takes many forms. So, where a secular situational analysis would say it's only structural, so anyone in power is bad, and those without power are virtuous, the the, the theological analysis would say yes, power can be abused by sinful people, and sinful people can enshrine that abuse in their structures and systems. All of that is true, and sin shows up in many ways. Sin shows up in victims and in the oppressed people too. And, and so 
uh, again, it's going to make people squirm on various uh, sides of the issues. And that's when you know you're doing it right, I think, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I hadn't really thought about it until uh, just now. And I get it. Of course, I'm sure you're like, yeah, this is exactly what I was doing. But you do that so well throughout the book of, apl- of applying the situational analysis. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. you you talk about like these three major uh, forces pretty on, early on into the book. Of uh, of pluralism, paganism, and private privatism, um, mm-hmm. and how <laughs> and how they have shaped us uh, in our society. And I would just love your th- thoughts on you know maybe describing kind of what those are and yeah. what are the ways in which that has shaped us that w- that we are unaware of. Yeah, I appreciate that, Caleb. And and you you're one of the lucky ones that read a not quite final version of the manuscript. So I actually changed the word privatism mm. to individualism yeah. uh, in the final uh, copy of the book. But <laughs> but yeah, let me unpack it. So the metaphor I use, and it's right there in chapter one, is of the earthquake that caused that tsunami that happened several years ago in Asia. And the, the earthquake is a picture of, you know, these two tectonic plates that are that obviously, you know, um, collided with each other. And I think in, in, in when we think about what's changing in the world, the earthquake, the two tectonic plates is Christianity and culture or Christianity and a country, you know. Um, sometimes people call that Christendom, where the idea that, that Christianity was the dominant and pervasive influence in a country and in a culture. Well, so those plates sat sat. Uh, comfortably beside each other for a couple hundred years or, or several hundred years, and and more recently they've been they've been colliding and creating this kind of friction and tension. So some people have said, you know, maybe it's sort of even caused this sort of post Christendom kind of place where society or culture is uneasy about being overly associated with Christianity, and I get that. But then just as that earthquake caused this swell in waves, so. Uh, in a similar way, this collision between Christianity and culture or the, the friction now that's between it has caused a surge of, of, of forces. And they're the, the, the three things that you mentioned are part of the surge, the surge of pluralism. Um, that is this idea that that all religions kind of are interchangeable and you, you can mix and match. And I describe in the book that the new pluralism is a little bit different than the old pluralism. So I'm from Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia. Malaysia is a, an example of the old pluralism. Uh, there's ancient religions that happily coexist, for the most part, happily coexist in Malaysia. You have Islam, you have Buddhism, you have Hinduism, and then about 10 or 11% of the population are Christians. So you have these four ancient religions, but they would never confuse one with the other, and they would never try to mix and match. You would never find a Buddhist who says, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian Buddhist, or, you know, I believe in, you know, Jesus is God, but so Buddha is also a great teacher. You don't really see that. That is kind of a Western innovation. And I, I describe the new pluralism as it's kind of imperialistic. It's like the empire used to work. You know, empires would take people from one part of the world and ship them around to the other part of the other parts of the world to be their slaves or whatever. And in a similar way, Western societies have been imperialistic, empire-like about religious ideas where they'll say, I'll take a pinch of this and a pinch of that. And let's take, you know, and let's mix it together and call it new age or call it whatever, spirituality. So it's imperialistic. And it is it is polytheistic. It's it's many gods, but again, many gods in a mix and match sort of way. Um, that's the surge of this new kind of pluralism. In fact, the worst 
the worst thing you could be right now is exclusive, you know? So if you say Jesus is the only way, or if a Muslim were to say, you know, no God but Allah, um, we'd say, oh my goodness, that, 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 don't be so, such an extremist, you know? Um, the only way to be religious is to be this sort of mix and match kind of uh, religion. Then there's the surge of paganism. And there, there is actually literally a surge in the old school kind of paganism. I live in Colorado. You know, once in a while, you'll hear little reports of witches and that kind of stuff and the occult. But what I'm thinking of is how paganism used to work in the ancient world is all of the gods are visible and close. Uh, you, you made an idol for your a blessing on your business or you made an I prayed to an idol for a blessing on fertility or, or for victory in battle or whatever. That's how paganism works. The gods are visible and they're close. And the words I use to describe it is paganism is transactional. Uh, I will do this if you will do this. I will burn incense if you will bless my business, you know, and it's therapeutic. So there is a sense in which this new paganism shows up in the way we think about the market. You know, I will invest my money, but you better make sure I get these returns. And that's how I, you know, you treat it as a kind of God um, or we treat technology or even politics. I'll vote for you, but you better make sure you deliver on this. So it's transactional and it's therapeutic. We really, we really just hope to, to sort of feel good at, at the end of this, you know, my self-esteem or my comfort uh, needs to improve. But I think, Caleb, that this kind of neo-paganism has also worked its way into the church. Um, so we use the name Jesus, but we're still being transactional and therapeutic about Jesus. Like, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you, but you better make sure that I get married or that I, you know, get a better job or, you know. Um, and 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 so there's a there's a there's a sliver of that that kind of tints our our perspective, even as Christians. And then the last one, individualism. This is the, you know, Charles Taylor's this philosophy of talk, he used the phrase expressive individualism, where we define who we are, and then we have to have the freedom, quote unquote, to express that and society needs to confirm that and affirm that. So I define my identity, I express my identity, you affirm my identity. And that's the kind of individualism we're, we're living with. And it, it when it comes to spirituality, that's an exclusively interior kind of spirituality where, hey, man, this is about me and my truth and my Zen and my peace. And actually, if you threaten that or if you disturb that, I'm cutting you out of my life. You know, like I can't have you in my life. Um, and so there's a there's a sort of buffering. Charles Taylor calls it the buffered self. We, we want to create layers of buffer so you can't threaten my self-definition. Um, but it also means that my spirituality doesn't automatically have social consequences. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where it creeps into the church. So we go to church, we pray, we do these wonderful things, we sing, we worship. But, you know, does it change the way I live? No, nah, not necessarily. Does it make me concerned about the poor? Nah, maybe, maybe not, you know. So neo-pluralism, uh, neo-paganism, and this sort of uh, expressive individualism are, it's the surge that it's in the, it's in the water, to extend that metaphor. It's in the water all around us, uh, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy for me to see, you know, especially on the the individualism and on on the, um, you know, you, you call it the paganism, like especially with like the, pro I mean, that's the prosperity gospel for yes, yes, um, yes. In, in very much uh, ways. Um, 
But I'd be curious to hear what are some subtle ways. It's it's very it's more difficult for me to see on the plural on the pluralism mm. on yeah. how that yeah. has um, seeped into you know the greater church or church. affected the church. And I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think you're right, Caleb. I don't think that has uh, had much of as as much of an influence or, or you know a, a creeping in effect. I think where it does show up a little bit is. You know, pluralism, not in literally other religions where Christians like also kind of quasi Buddhist or whatever, but in the where the the pagan gods of market and technology and politics sit very easily alongside Jesus. I mean, think of the ways and we're going to talk about this maybe, but in the the book I talk about sort of this Christian nationalism thing, you know, and so whenever you see a Jesus draped in the American flag carrying, uh, you know, semi-automatic rifles or whatever, and and I, I got nothing against i love america and i'm i'm fine with people having the freedom to to bear arms and all of that but but i think when you when you cloak jesus in those things yeah. you've now made a jesus that that uh is mixing with these other uh, allegiances or other loyalties and that's the kind of syncretism that that neo pluralism is which is a religion does not have the kind of dominating or organizing effect that it's supposed to have. And Christianity, you know, the Romans, they they kind of thought Christianity is not a religion because in the ancient world, religion was definitely private life kind of stuff. They they looked at the early Christians and they're like, this is almost like a philosophy because you're trying to change a way of life. Mm-hmm. And Paul would have said, amen, brother. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. You know, and I, and I think for Christians today, we're, we're reverting a little bit where Jesus is my little religion for my afterlife. But hey, if I want to live this way or whether it's in my sexuality or in my politics or in my money, uh, then I can do whatever I want. Yeah, that uh, I think you just talking about it made it go like, oh, yeah, I can very easily see it now because it is a, it's a dial. It's idolatry for it, yes. Um, yes. which I think, at least for me, using. Yeah, that just helped me uh, picture it even more. Um, mm. One of the things mm. that I want to ask you about and you, um, you know, you split up to you split the book into, you know, two two primary sections of, you know, the challenges for pastors and the challenges for churches. And I want to get um, to both of those a little bit, but I want to start with the pastors and I would just be curious to hear for you, like, what is the thing or the, it could be many things, um, <laughs> but, you know, you you use a lot of Barner research in it as well. Mm-hmm. And I know that you did a lot of uh, interviews and groups talking mm-hmm. with different pastors. What's the thing or the things that made you go, wow, I did not expect to learn yeah. this about pastors? Yeah. Yeah, and I I was grateful to be able to join the research team in designing the surveys that were sent out to pastors in late 2020 and even some questions that went out to the general population early 2021. And then, as you alluded to, I I had three focus groups uh, with pastors from the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., uh, just, you know, to get a little bit more in their own words, you know, about the situations. And and I think a couple things stood out to me. One was this loss of credibility. Uh, among pastors, you know, pastors used to sort of had have this um, place of trust where their opinions beyond their opinions on God or the Bible, their opinions would sort of count for something, you know, 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> kind of hu- a humorous example. I remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago, pastors would come out with diet books and nutrition books, and people would be like, yeah, my pastor's recommending this eating plan or whatever. You know, people would listen to their pastor about all kinds of stuff. Maybe they shouldn't have, you know. So maybe maybe it's all come back to roost now. But but pastors have really seen a decline in, in uh, credibility, specifically the way we phrased the question was, uh, do you consider a pastor to be a trustworthy source of wisdom? And we asked that question generally like that, a trustworthy source of wisdom. And then we asked it specifically about certain topics and things like that. But even on that overarching question, do you consider a pastor to be a trustworthy source of wisdom? Uh, 60, uh, sorry, 57% of all U.S. adults said either yes, somewhat, or yes, definitely. So, you know, not bad, 57%. But when you split it out, for non-Christians, that number is only 22%. So only 22% of non-Christians said that a pastor is even somewhat a trustworthy source of wisdom. Um, and that, you know, maybe you say, okay, well, you know, what, what did we expect, you know? But for Christians, that number is only 71%. And when I've talked to pastors recently, I say, I- imagine that, like about a third of the people on a given Sunday morning are listening to you and saying, I don't know, you know, and that's, man, that, I think that's a change. I think that's, pastors feel it too. You know, they, they feel the, um, the, the people not really listening to their words. And, and some of that, you know, during the pandemic, when, when uh, the height of the pandemic, when people, most people were on online only uh, church, um, it really, it really eroded it even more because then people, you know, after a few weeks, people were like, well, if I'm going to watch on YouTube, I'll watch my favorite pastor or whatever. And they started to kind of get in this habit. And then it made them really dissatisfied with the their local pastor. And some of the pastors in my in my focus group, you know, really, you know, it was sad to hear them say, yeah, some congregants just began listening to and what they described as, you know, sort of the hot preacher of the month or whatever. And they're like, it made them really not want to come back. And I felt sad for them because not only are they declining in credibility in the community, uh, but even in the church, uh, Christians are like, yeah, I, I don't know. I listen to this guy and this guy and this guy or this gal. And, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, man, it's, it's, it's changed that. So that's, that's one of the big ones. Yeah. Uh, the other one was, was just sort of how lonely pastors are. Many pastors describe themselves uh, as, as feeling lonely, um, feeling like they don't really have, you know, feeling isolated from others. 25% of pastors say they frequently feel isolated from others, you know, uh, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and so th- those are the kinds of things that, that I became concerned about their relationships and uh, the sense of trust. Yeah. And, uh, those are two things that I, I want to dig down on because going through the book, those like the relational side and the credibility side were two things that really stood out to me on that. Um, and I got to say, I don't know if you'll find this humorous or not, but I, I find it humorous of like whenever I came to the credibility section and you were talking about that and I was just like, oh, this is awesome. He's going to give us stuff to regain our credibility. And like I'm going through the book. I'm like, man, I'm so excited. Um, and you did such a turn in such a great way because it it brought me such uh, comfort and peace. You know, you say, um, you know, and you frame it about getting more our, our authority back and you say, uh, we need to remember the source of our authority is Jesus mm-hmm. and it comes from being in his presence. Mm-hmm. And I would just be curious to your thoughts of um, like, as I was going through the book, I was not thinking about our authority from Jesus. 
And I think that is, I don't think I'm alone in that of yeah. regaining yeah. our credibility. Um, yeah. What, what leads us to that mindset of thinking, Hey, we need something else besides Jesus to regain our <laughs> credibility. <laughs> Well, there it's that's so great. There, there's a long history of this, yeah. you know. And Andrew Root's book, "The Pastor in a Secular Age," was very helpful to me in kind of even tracing the history of that. You know, in the medieval times, the priest was sort of viewed as having supernatural powers; they could turn bread and wine into the literal body and blood of Christ. And you know, as a Protestant, I, I don't believe that. That's not the way I think about the bread and the wine. But historically it's important to recognize pastors were sort of viewed with this sort of superstitious or supernatural kind of power. And then as time went on, you know, the post enlightenment pastors got their power, so to speak from their education. Uh, and so, you, you know, you have Jonathan Edwards, um, maybe the first of the quote unquote America's pastor uh, in our history and his famous for how many hours a week he would spend studying and reading and writing his sermons and people would, would think, man, Edwards, he's so learned, you know, and of course, uh, um, universities, you know, Yale, you know, founded, you know, kind of th th these preachers are connected with institutions that still are esteemed in America today. Um, but then things began to change and, and Root, Andrew Root traces this, I think somewhere in the 80s, 1980s or so, maybe a little bit before that, probably before that with denominations, but you kind of have the large churches. So you had large Presbyterian churches and then, of course, large mega churches in the 80s and 90s. And so then your, your power came from the size of your institution. And in, in a way, it parallels society, right? We started to admire CEOs because of the companies they built. And that that sort of became the norm. Um, and and then in today's world, it's it's not the institutions. It's kind of this more... Um, network power. So how many followers you have. So really, you know, someone could be at a smaller institution or an insignificant institution, quote unquote, insignificant, but have all these followers or be part of these, these big networks. And then all of a sudden they have power. So we, but we fool ourselves into thinking that those are the real sources of our power. Right. And you go all the way back to, to Jesus calling his disciples and the call there in the gospels is to come and be with me. He says, come and be with, he called them to be with him and then to go out and to cast out demons and heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. And when you read it that way in that sequence, you realize, oh, it's being with him that allows them to then go and do likewise. And of course, that's how the Great Commission is worded. You know, go into all the world, do all this stuff. And then for I am with you always as a reminder, the way that you can teach, the way that you can uh, baptize and, 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 and cast out, you know, demons and all this stuff is because I am. And with you, and then again, to underscore the point even more in the book of Acts, you have the description of these disciples as quote unquote unschooled men, you know, fishermen who had not been to rabbinic school, were not kind of in this. Um, and and it's a great return for us to say, yes, the first followers of Jesus, their authority didn't come from uh, magical powers of their own or from their education or their institutions or their influencer platform uh, or network. It, it comes from being with jesus yeah and uh even or i guess going along with that i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how does that shape the way that we communicate because you know a lot of um and not not every case but a lot of pastors you know it is it's the one-to-many approach yeah. of communicating and so um how does that change our communicating and even specifically mm -hmm. like thinking um as you were mentioning earlier to an audience who may not even view us as credible or at least part mm -hmm. of the audience may not view us as yeah. 
Man, that's a really good reflection. I, I, in the, at the end of the chapter, I say, you know, the source of our authority determines its shape. Mm-hmm. And we start to remember the way Jesus used his authority. John 13, it says, when Jesus knew that the Father had entrusted everything to him, took out his took off his outer garment and began to wash their feet. And that's the picture for us is what do you do when you recognize that you do hold a place of authority? And and the reality for pastors is we do. There's no point pretending like we don't because we stand, as you said, on a platform or, or speak. Or, or even because we carry the title in, in these conversations, there is a there is a power differential there, and to keep it healthy, we want to stay connected to Jesus. And by staying connected to Jesus, we remember, oh, how did Jesus use his power again? Oh yeah, not to not by lording it over people, but by washing their feet. And so I think there's a way of preaching, Caleb, that is real um, heavy, and you're beating people up, and you're you're bullying people. You're, you're shaming people. And there's a way of preaching that is like washing people's feet, where you're, you're vulnerable about your own um, need for Jesus. Uh, I, I always think, you know, is the hero of your story or the hero of your sermon uh, yourself or Jesus? You know, are you pointing to how you and your wife or your family or your spouse, you know, are living this out? Or are you pointing to, to you know what, I'm right there with you guys. We, I, we all need uh, Jesus to to help us. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the grace of God. So preaching changes. I think the way we lead changes. There's a kind of humility, softness, sensitivity um, that happens when we recognize this needs to be, Christ needs to not only be the source of our authority, but the shape of our authority. Yeah. It even made me think, and I would love your thoughts on this too, of like, it shapes what we talk about too. Mm. Because like, I just think of um, I think sometimes there's a tendency in the church to, you know, we we abdicate our our place on something that our our congregation needs pastored through, and because it's going to be difficult, we just don't address it. Um, yeah. yeah, any thoughts on that? That's I. That's you're you're right on. I mean, I agree with you. I think, um, uh, you know, when you read what Jesus talked about. Um, there are uncomfortable things and and they are there's challenges there to our own materialism or um the desire to kind of you know self-fulfillment as an ultimate yeah. end uh, jesus would say no take up your cross this is how you really find yourself and so yeah you're absolutely right it changes what we preach on it changes how we approach those topics and uh, it, and it allows us to say there's a gentle way to challenge and call people in, into this life of following jesus and it's not it's not simply about affirming their egos or self-esteem or saying, yeah, let, let all your dreams come true kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we we talked about the the relational side of stuff. And I got to say, you you reference a study in mm. that's that in that section of the book that I have literally I've not been able to stop thinking about this study because I think it just it, it it at least for me, it changes my perspective on how I view yeah. ministry. And it's the study from uh, the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships from Jeffrey Hall. And essentially what it says is, you know, um, you know, if you spend 40 to 60 hours, you start to form a casual relationship with somebody. If it's 80 to 100, they start becoming a friend. And if it's more than 200, uh, you start to become good friends. And, you know, you you also reference, you know, how it's it's unstructured time that this needs to yes. be like it can't That's be it. like, oh, hey, we're working together. We're going to work That's together right. every day. Um, and it just made me think of man, I wonder if that's true of the church too. Like I'm, I'm a former student pastor. Um, and so it made me think of student ministry 
in kids ministry of how these kids like to them, it probably is structured time. Um, at least, at least for some degree, they, they might be being forced there, um, mm-hmm. by their parents. And so, uh, I have just been trying to think through the ramifications of that study. If we're trying to form community in the church. Um, and I would just love your thoughts on, uh, on just on that and how that changes stuff. Well, for the pastor, it's tricky because where do you find all those hours for leisure yeah. time, you know, and, and, you know, relationships are complicated for pastors because we are doing relational work. Our, our work is relational work. So, you know, people tend to focus on the preaching that that is a sliver of the time. I mean, even the pastors that I surveyed at the top end, they're spending 15 hours a week uh, on the server at the top end. Most of them, it's like less than 10. You know, so the rest of their week is going to meetings with staff or or meetings with congregants, appointments with congregants. And in all of those settings, you have to be relational. You have to be empathetic. You have to be intuitive. Your, you know, uh, emotional intelligence needs to be off the charts. You can't lose your temper. You can't, you know, you can't be reactive. So you're you're working and that's difficult work. But even though it's relational work, those relationships are asymmetrical and oftentimes non-reciprocal. And what I mean by asymmetrical is there's a power differential there. You might feel close, you might be hanging out, but at the end of the day, they know if it's a staff person, you can have a say into their their salary or their job status. And if it's a congregant, even there's a sense of like, you might throw down the hammer and say, you know, God is challenging. So there's, it's not symmetrical. And then when I say non-reciprocal, ah, you know, sometimes people invite us to things. Sometimes we have to be at things. But there's just the sense in which we have to take the role of the initiator when you're a pastor. And so it just is not, it's not the same. Yeah. And and so because of that, the, uh, the, the, the tendency for pastors is to fool ourselves and to say, well, I'm in all these relational spaces. I, I've got friends. Um, yes, but do you have any non- uh, or do you have any reciprocal and symmetrical uh, relationships? And usually the answer is, yeah, not really, actually. Um, and so how do we how do we get 200 hours of unstructured leisure time with someone in a reciprocal, <laughs> symmetrical way? It's tricky. But this is my encouragement to pastors is prioritize that, you know, make room for that in your life. Just take some time on the, on your days off or even if it's once a month and you know, old buddies, people that that know you before you had this, knew you before you had this position. I think that's 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 really really important. And like, have you thought through and may and maybe not? And if so, that's okay. But um, like, I've been very curious to think about how that. And again, I don't want to place too much weight, you know, in the study or more than what it is. Um, but that has really just got me thinking about how that changes the dynamic of of church or of community yeah. in the church yeah, that's true. for like you know for for the being a, yeah for for the congregants yeah. and like ultimately like I view you know us as pastors trying to create that type of like we want people to have the 200 yeah. plus hour friends mm-hmm. and stuff like that and so any thoughts on that yeah that's good too i i, I think uh, you know uh, 10 years ago or so when we started our our small group stuff at new life downtown we decided not to do a Bible study or a book study. In fact, we kind of banned that. <laughs> we said, listen, all we want you to do is meet, eat, uh, share something about your life, and we'll give you some question prompts to get you on a deeper level there, and then pray for one another. And the reason for that is, again, it's 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 very lightly structured. Oh, 
almost unstructured, really, you know, just get gathering a home with a, for a potluck, eat together. And then here's a question that can guide the conversation and then pray for one another. Um, and the reason for that is because we all know what it's like to be in a Bible study with, you know, a person for years and you, and then all of a sudden they get divorced or something's happening. You're like, whoa, I never knew what was going on in their life. That's right. Because that structure took up all the time. So they've, they've logged a lot of hours in church functions, but, but really not in getting to know each other, the koinonia, the sharing of the life. So if a church is going to facilitate that, I think we have to be lighter in our touch, you know, so okay, maybe we do convene a night for, for you know, men to hear a speaker or women's to, you know, women to have a thing or a small group thing or a family night or a parent's night or whatever. But if you're scheduling those, uh, so many of those, then all people are doing is coming to events or coming to functions. But really the goal ought to be for those events and functions to be a catalyst for the organic forming of relationships. That's what we want. And we tell our people that, look, the goal for this stuff is just, it's just a little springboard. It's just a little, you know, we're just kind of setting the environment here. But our hope is that something will spark and then real friendships will form. And also we, we encourage people to know, take the long view. I mean, take the long view of this. Even if you're in a weekly small group, let's say it's two hours a week, a weekly small, that's 100 hours in one year. It's going to take you two years of that same small group. And probably you're not there every week. So maybe we, we would be optimistic to say it's going to take you three years before you feel like you found a lot of friends in, in church. And I think we give up on community too easily. You know, community requires commitment and commitment means time. Yeah. And and thinking about what we've talked about earlier with the individualism as well. Yeah. Like yeah. All, thinking about all that stuff plays into our, uh, our, our tendency to, to give up on things like community easily. Um, you know, the, the other section that you write about is you also write about the church as well. And I'd also be curious to hear what surprised you most in your findings about the church, like the greater church as well. Yeah. There, it wasn't as surprising, but it was confirming of some of the suspicions I had in one of the chapters. So the four challenges for, uh, just to name them, the four challenges for the pastor was the challenge of vocation or calling, the challenge of spirituality, our own spiritual life with God, the challenge of relationships, and the challenge of credibility. The four challenges for the church were worship, you know, why do we gather, um, uh, the challenge of formation, how do we make disciples, the challenge of unity and the challenge of mission. And I would say, you know, there, there were some things about the, the way people understood missional priorities that were confirming, but in a bit of a sad uh, way. And I'll give you an example here. Um, the church's missional priorities are split along theological or denominational lines. So mainline Protestants say their number one missional priority is local poverty, hunger, homelessness, 85% of them. Uh, of, of pastors in mainline denominations, whereas non-mainline Protestants said their number one missional priority was evangelism, 83%. Now, I happen to think both are important, you know, but the disparity was pretty low. You know, the one put that, that put poverty high put evangelism as, you know, lowest, and the one that put evangelism high put poverty lower. So I, I would love to see, and the chapter tries to encourage a holistic vision of the kingdom, where the, the kingdom mission is is both and, you know, it's good news. It's the preaching of the gospel is good news for the poor yeah. and it's the forgiveness of sins. And it's, it's all of this. When the Lord reigns, the earth rejoices. It's got to be good news all around. 
and I, I, I think it's it's unfortunate that we have such a long history in America of splitting uh, these priorities to the point where, if an evangelical church decided to to you know do an initiative to feed the hungry, you'll get some people saying, "Now, brother, are we also going to give out tracts?" Or you know, <laughs> and and it's man, it's it's tricky. But on the flip side, is also true where someone's giving out you, you know. Um, uh, food and 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 care, but doesn't want to talk about Jesus at all. It doesn't want to share their faith at all. So uh, we've got to do better than that uh, and, and recover this sort of New Testament mission. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about uh, is formation as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. especially, you know, in this, it might uh, be some of the stuff that I'm sure it's some of the stuff that we talked about earlier in the situational analysis and pluralism and all of that. Um, but where are you seeing like, hey, uh, we, we as the church might need to pay a little bit more attention into the formation of not only, uh, not only the congregation, but ourselves as well of like thinking, thinking through theologically of like, Hey, these are some of the things that um, they're not going away. Um, And so we need to adjust, uh, just our sales and start talking about said things or thinking about strategies for discipling people in such things. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I do think we have to be able to think Christianly, mm-hmm. to use a phrase I think Stanley Hauerwas used to use all the time, um, about about the topics of our day, and certainly um, from money to sexuality to society and politics. Um, but the idea is is again teachings that are the teachings of Christ, uh, and to show how, for example, how does the Sermon on the Mount uh, impact the way we think about. And again, some of the Mount includes all that. There's stuff in there about adultery and anger and murder and 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 violence. I mean, I mean, but we we want to form our opinions about those things elsewhere, and then just come to Jesus for forgiveness and heaven, you know. Um, and that's not discipleship. Discipleship is not memorizing scripture verses and 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 knowing a lot about Romans and all this stuff. And when I in that chapter, we really I really kind of spend some time digging into. Uh, the Church of the Two Hundreds, you know, in in Carthage, North Africa, and they, their process of catechism um, was about an apprenticing community. So, a people around them that would say, "Let's talk to me about your your decisions in your life." Now, listen. The the caution here, Caleb, is we can get real heavy handed and controlling about this, and mm-hmm. we're trying to tell people about their bank accounts and their, you know, and we cannot do that. We cannot be controlling and invasive and and all of that. At the same time, an apprenticing community means that we want to be able to say, "Hey, you know, this ought to change the way you think about." how you you handle your 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 business decisions or your treat your employees or pay your employees or uh, rental properties or whatever and the other part of it that struck me was they were th- these people in the process of preparing for baptism in the 200s they 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 were being instructed in the teachings of Jesus and I think for us, again, we we are pretty good at systematic theology. So like a Sunday school Bible class, whatever, we're either going to go deep on a book of the Bible or we're going to teach people systematic theology in a basic level, which, I, you know, I think is good. It, I, I, I like theology. Yeah. I think a good doctrine class is very helpful. But But maybe what we've missed is taking the teachings of Jesus seriously enough to think and wrestle with them out loud in a, in a group together and say, gosh, what do you think that means for my decision about, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, my friend Sky Jatani wrote a book, What If Jesus Was Serious? You know, and it's all about the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's, 
man, that's exactly the kind of formation stuff that's missing. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I wanted to ask you about, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, is that of unity as well. Mm-hmm. And you you talk about two specific things that are um, are more prevalent in that right now of, uh, you know, structural racism and then Christian nationalism. And I would just love your thoughts on that. And even just how we can, how we can think about unity and pursue unity in the midst of uh, both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had to kind of focus in on two sort of threats to unity and structural racism. What I mean by that is we, we are not on the same page about what the problem of racism is. Um, and this came out, you know, years ago, divided by faith, Michael Emerson's research, um, where he discovered a, a great majority of, of uh, particularly white evangelicals um, think of racism purely in individual terms. And and that's good. That is a dimension of racism where personal prejudice and all of that. Um, but 20 years later, after Emerson's work, we're still struggling with that. So if anyone brings up the historical dimension of racism or even the structural, and what I mean by structural is things that uh, leftovers from a different era. And, and I don't, you know, I'm, I, I'm still learning a lot about this. I, I don't know how many uh, leftover laws or structures or systems remain, but I think they are more prevalent in certain parts of the country than others. And at least the willingness to say, gosh, I never thought of that as actually a system that was built to favor one um, race or one group of people over another um, and it's not, it, you know, we, we, sometimes we make the mistake of saying we need the outcomes to be the same equal distribution. That, that, I don't think that's the idea. Uh, I personally, you know, think it's about equal access and opportunities and all of that. And to make sure that systems and structures aren't tilted um, to favor one versus the other. Mm-hmm. So, so those are difficult conversations. And they're difficult because we have different experiences of America and of society. I have a different experience as an Asian immigrant. Uh, it's not the same thing as the experience of a, a Latino or Latina or or of an African American, you know. Um, so, and my wife is, you know, generations from from European immigrants, you know, a couple, you know, whatever, 150 years ago from she's from Iowa, her family's from Iowa. So we we need to get a little bit better at listening to one another and and accepting that someone's experience of society is going to be different than ours. Um, when it comes to Christian nationalism, this one's tricky because that's another one of those nuclear labels that once you, once you throw it on someone, it's like, man, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. You know, um, and and I want to define it a bit. I, I've used you know um, Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead's uh, work. I think it's helpful. I think it has some limitations, and I critique it a little bit mm-hmm. in the book. Um, but what what Christian nationalism is is this kind of view that God was sort of the defining feature in America's story that God was responsible for the founding of America. Um, Not just that there were Christian influences in America, but that God sort of, you know, did this, Um, that God is kind of central to America's identity and even invested in America's destiny. I think when we go there, we're, it's, we're on dangerous ground because is God the sovereign over all nations and world events? Yes. But anytime we want to say something too specific and say, I think God specifically caused this and this is what he has in mind, uh, we got to be cautious there because we don't see the whole story of history. We don't see the whole story of what God is up to in the world. And we all know that nations rise and nations fall, and but the kingdom of God is forever. So we want to be careful not to overly um, tie God to the destiny or, or identity or even history of America. But having said that, some things get labeled as Christian nationalism, which are not quite Christian nationalism. You know, 
Um, I spend some time early in the book and a bit in this section of the book talking about what we what we value about Western society comes from Christian roots. You know, we wouldn't actually listen to victims or or give them a voice if it weren't for one victim 2000 years ago who suffered on a cross. And, and Tom, Tom Holland is a secular British historian who's made this, this argument over and over again, uh, the meets from the me too movement to black lives matter. The reason we listen to the cry of the victim is because of a, a man who was crucified, died a slave's death on the cross 2000 years ago. Um, Rome didn't value humility. That wasn't a Roman virtue, but we value this in our leaders. Our leaders have to at least pretend to be humble if they're going to get elected or, you know, so there's a lot that's part of our, our fabric of society that comes from Christian roots. And I would not want to, I, I, I think severing the tree of Western society from Christian roots, uh, while hoping to retain the fruits, um, is an exercise in futility. Now, that doesn't mean I want our society to be Christian. I just think we have to be at least be more honest about where these virtues and values come from. So if a person were to have that view, that doesn't make them a Christian nationalist. We got to be careful how we throw around this label. But where we do find it, where we do find the true manifestations of that, I don't think that's a segment to be reconciled and held in unity, so to speak. I think that's one of those things that actually undermines the unity of the church that we've got to confront, challenge, potentially cut out, yeah. and depending on how people respond. At the end of the chapter on unity, I talk about several postures. Um, the, the first posture is sort of a posture of honesty and humility about our ourselves, where, where we have not been, maybe we've been stuck in our own view. But then there's three postures that I learned from Sandra Van Opstel's uh, work. Um, she's a Latina that does a lot of writing on on worship, and 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 she says, you know, we we start with a sense, uh, the posture of hospitality. You are welcome here. You're not like me. We don't see the same, but you are welcome here. But then we move from hospitality to solidarity, where it's not just you are welcome here because that still puts me in the place of power, but I will stand with you. That's solidarity. So. When a, a white American says to a black American, I don't know what it's like to experience this kind of pain or fear of um, brutality from, from police or whatever. I don't know what it's like, but I'll stand with you in, in your fear and in, in your pain. And I want to learn more. That's solidarity. Um, and then the third posture is mutuality, where it's not just you are welcome here, hospitality, or I stand with you, solidarity. But we will help one another, and that's mutuality. And I believe you see that in the New Testament, Paul's letter. So here's my theological reflection. You know, uh, the New Testament is full of these one another phrases where Paul's trying to move Jews and Gentile slaves and free male and female um, to actually live out our unity by being, um, by loving one another, being kind to one another, forgiving one another, tenderhearted with one another, over and over again, these one another passages in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. I got one other thing I want to ask you, but before that, is there anything that we haven't talked about, you know, that you just want to make sure that we mention? No, man, you've asked some great questions, Caleb. I love what we've talked about. Great. Uh, you know, it's, it's no surprise to anybody who's listening. The last couple of years have been very hard, very difficult. Um, and that's just on the society level. And then you get into mm -hmm. the personal stuff. It might even be longer than um, two years. I would just love um, your charge or your encouragement to people who are listening. Yeah. I I know you're tired. And, you know, Caleb, like you said, you know, people are have gone through a lot. Um, there's a sort of collective trauma people are talking about. 
uh, counselors are describing that we've all sort of experienced together. There's an individual sort of loneliness and ache, weariness. Um, I, I, I feel that. I know that that's true. And so my, my encouragement to you is not to dig deep and find the strength within yourself, but to come back to Jesus or, or, or maybe even start with Jesus. Um, I think about Peter being weary and having denied Jesus and having gone through the turmoil of watching him being crucified and then now seeing him risen and probably just being disoriented. Like, what, what do I do? You know, and Jesus saying, do you love me? And, you know, people have focused on the different Greek words for love there and all that. But the most striking word is the word me. Jesus doesn't ask Peter, Peter, don't you love the church? Peter, don't you love the kingdom? Peter, don't you love miracles? Peter, don't you love the move of God? Say, Peter, do you love me? And I think for all of us, leaders, Christians, wherever you are, start with Jesus and ask him to renew your love for him. We love him because he first loved us. So ask him to let him let you see a picture of his love for you so that your love for him would be renewed. And then secondly, it's it's time to take an inventory of your relationships. Do you have the right people around you? Um, do you have friends? Do you have peers? Do you have counselors, healers, I call them, people in your life that can bring that kind of... Um, um, influence of healing and wholeness. Do you have sages, you know, wise guides that can walk with you? Um, uh, what are the people in your life? Who are the people in your life? What are, kinds of relationships do you have? It's time to surround yourself with um, the right people. And then finally, I, I would say welcome the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the Spirit who renews us. It's the Spirit who sustains us. Paul said the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And, and I would say amen, and the same spirit who has sustained the church for 2,000 years is at work in your life and in your church's life. So um, welcome the, the Holy Spirit afresh today. Well, Glenn, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, The Resilient Pastor, and continue to learn from you and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Well, they can find it wherever books are sold, wherever they like to buy books, whether that's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or their local bookshop or Target. Uh, Walmart. It's available everywhere. Um, I've got a few links to those places on my website, glennpakium.com. That's Glenn with two N's, uh, Pakium, P-A-C-K-I-A-M. And uh, they can they can watch the trailer. They can even download some samples of the book. And then there's some links to those various places to purchase it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work and sharing it with us. Thank you so much, Caleb. I think coming out of that conversation with Glenn and just even reading the book, there's a few different things, and I mentioned some of these uh, during the interview as well, of things that have just stood out to me. One, I think, is uh, just situational analysis that he was talking about. You know, I've I've been thinking about that a lot throughout, or just that idea. I don't think I had the terminology for it until after reading the book and talking with Glenn. Uh, but thinking through the situational analysis of something and realizing the context of which things are happening and, and, and understanding that. And being willing to go deeper and understanding what are the what's the things beneath the surface that is driving these things, um, you know, just as he mentioned with the the individualism and the plural and the pluralism and paganism, and uh, yeah, and just figuring figuring that stuff out. And the other one, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was the credibility thing, as well of just being so challenged on that in my own life of how how quick and how easy I am. Uh, to f- to try to figure out what the next solution is when the or not solution but 
uh, the thing of, you know, being relevant and, you know, gaining the authority or the credibility that I talked about. And I think there is a place for that. Um, I think it was just very convicting to me because I think I'm much more quicker to do that than to, to go to Jesus and to be with him and let him be the source of the authority or of the, of the relevance in that. And the last one uh, is just that study that I mentioned about friendship and thinking through all of the implications of that and how that changes how, how ministry is done in, in the church world and how community is formed and realizing, okay, so what, what is the type of activities that actually lead to genuine friendship and genuine relationship and have we built or structured things in such a way that actually lead to that that community forming, that relational aspect forming in people's lives? And so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. I would love to hear from you and some of the things that you're learning from. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to continue to learn uh, from some of the things that we're talking about, you know, subscribe to the newsletter. I uh, give recommended resources of some of the things that I'm learning from as well, or sign up for the Patreon dollars for a few dollars a month, and you'll be able to get uh, more content and more access to some of the things that I'm thinking about, deeper dives into some of the things that I'm learning from as well, and you know some of the um, original ideas and, and concepts and stuff that I'm putting together as well. And so all that stuff can be linked to, uh, well, they can be linked to in the show notes, but you will find them in the show notes for anything like that. It would mean a lot if you left a rating on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or hit the follow up button or the subscribe button and you'll be sure to never miss an episode as well. I think that's all that I have for today. And so I want to say thanks to Garrett Oler for doing the editing on the podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Glenn for being on the podcast as well. Really enjoyed our time together. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. And that's all that I got for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.